Chapter 36 of Howarth's. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Edward Josephovic. Howarth's by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter 36 Settling an Account. It was not until the week following that Howarth returned and then he came without having given any previous warning of his intention. French, sitting in his office in a rather dejected mood one morning, was startled by his entering with even less than his usual small ceremony. "'My dear Hayworth!' he exclaimed. "'Is it possible?' His first intention had been to hold out his hand, but he did not do so. In fact, he sat down again a little suddenly and uneasily. Howarth sat down too, confronting him squarely. "'What have you been up to?' he demanded. What is this row about? About, echoed French. It's the most extraordinary combination of nonsense and misunderstanding I ever heard of in my life. How it arose, there is no knowing. The fellows are mad. Aye, angrily. Mad now, but you can't stop them now they've got a gate. It's a devilish lookout for us. I've heard it all over the country, and the more you say again it, the worse it is. They're said on it all through Lancashire that there's a plot again them and they're forfetting it in their own fashion. You you don't think it will be worse for us, his partner suggested weakly. It struck me that, in the end, it mightn't be a bad thing, that it would change the direction of their mood. Wait until the end comes. It's not here yet. Tell me how it happened. Upon the whole, Mr. French made a good story of it. He depicted the anxieties and dangers of the occasion very graphically. He had lost a good deal of his enthusiasm on the subject of the uncultivated virtues and sturdy determination of the manufacturing laboring classes, and he was always fluent, as has been before mentioned. He was very fluent now, and especially so, in describing the incident of his daughter's presenting herself to the mob and the result of her daring. She might have lost her life, he said at one point. It was an insane thing to have done, an insane thing. She surprised them at first but she could not hold them in check after Murdoch came. She will bear the mark of the stone for many a day. They threw a stone, blast them, did they? said Howarth, setting his teeth. Yes, but not at her. Perhaps they would hardly have dared that after all. It was thrown at Murdoch. And he stepped out of the way? Oh no, he did not see the man raise his arm, but she did, and was too much alarmed to reflect, I suppose, and in fact threw herself before him. He moved back disturbedly the next instant. Howarth burst forth with a string of oaths. The veins stood out like cords on his forehead. He ground his teeth. When the outbreak was over, he asked an embarrassing question. Where were you? I? With some uncertainty of tone. I had not gone out. I, I did not wish to infuriate them. It seemed to me that, that, that a great deal depended upon their not being infuriated. Aye, said Howarth, a good deal. He asked a good many questions French did not quite understand. He seemed in a questioning humor and went over the ground step by step. He asked what the mob had said and done, and even how they had looked. It's a bad lookout for Murdoch, he said. They'll have a spite again him. They're lying quiet a bit now because it's safest, but they'll carry their spite. At French's invitation, he went up to the house with him to dinner. As they passed into the grounds, Murdoch passed out. He was walking quietly and scarcely seemed to see them until French spoke. 
It's a queer time of day for him to be here, said Howard, when he was gone. French's reply held a touch of embarrassment. He's not usually here so early, he said. He has probably been doing some little errand for Rachel. The truth was that he had been with her for an hour, and that on seeing Howarth coming down the road with her father, she had sent him away. I want to be alone when he comes, she had said. And when Murdoch said why, she had answered, because it will be easier. When they came in, she was sitting with the right side of her face toward them. They could see nothing of the mark upon her left temple. It was not a large mark, nor a disfiguring one, but there were traces of its presence in her pallor. She did not rise, and would have kept this side of her face out of view, but Howarth came and took his seat before her. It would not have been easy for her to move or change her position, and he looked directly at the significant little bruise. His glance turned upon it again and again as he talked to her or her father. If it wandered off, it came back and rested there. During dinner, she felt that, place herself as she would, in a few seconds she would be conscious again that he had baffled her. For the first time in his experience, it was he who had the advantage. But when they returned to the parlor, she held herself in check. She placed herself opposite to him and turned her face toward him, and let him look without flinching. It was as if suddenly she wished that he would see, and had a secret, defiant reason for the wish. It seemed a long evening, but she did not lose an inch of ground after this. When he was going away, she rose and stood before him. Her father had gone to the other end of the room, and was fussing unnecessarily over some memoranda. As they waited together, Howarth took his last look at the mark upon her temple. If it had been me you wore it for, he said, I'd have my hands on the throat of the chap that did it before now. It wasn't me, but I'll find him and pay him for it yet, by George. She had no time to answer him. Her father came toward them with the papers in his hands. Howarth listened to his wordy explanation without moving a line of his face. He did not hear it and French was dimly aware of the fact. About half an hour after, the door of the bar parlor of the who'd have thought it was flung open. Where's Briarly? a voice demanded. Send him out here. I want him. Howarth. Mr. Briarly arose in even more than his usual trepidation. He looked from side to side, quaking. Where is he? he asked. Howarth stood on the threshold. Here, he answered. Come out. Mr. Briarly obeyed. At the door, Howarth collared him and led him down the sanded passage and into the road outside. A few yards from the house, there was a pump. He piloted him to it and set him against it, and began to swear at him fluently. You blasted scoundrel, he said. You let it out, did you? Mr. Briarly was covered with confusion as with a garment. I'm a misfortunate chap, as is all is in trouble, he said. There's something in everything I lay hand on as seems to go again me. I don't see how it is. Happen there's something in me a being a dumb fool, or happen it's not but misfortune, Sir Rannan. Howarth stopped him by swearing again, something more sulphurously than before, so sulphurously, indeed, that Mr. Briarly listened with eyes distended and mouth agape. Let's hear what you know about the thing, Howarth ended. Mr. Briarly shut his mouth. He would have kept it shut if he dared. I do not know not, he answered, with patient mendacity. I were not with him. You know plenty, said Howarth. Out with it. If you don't want to get yourself into trouble, who is the chap that threw the stone? 
I, I don't know. If you don't tell me, said Howarth, through his clenched teeth, it'll be worse for you. It was you I let the truth slip to. You were the first chap that heard it, and you were the first chap that started the row and egged it on. I did not egg it on, protested Mr. Brierly. I did not need no egging on. They pounced on it like cats on a bird. It did not mean to tell him about it. I'm a damned fool. I'm the damnedest fool from here to Dillop. I said Howarth, sardonically. That's like now. Who was the chap that threw the stone? He returned to the charge so swiftly and with such fell determination that Mr. Brierly began fairly to whimper. I dare not tell, he said. They'd make quick work of me if they fund me out. Who was it? persisted Howarth. They'll make quicker work of you at the old Bailey if you don't. Mr. Brierly turned his disreputable battered cap round and round in his nervous hands. He was mortally afraid of Howarth. A man's getting to think of his family, he argued. If he don't think of his, he must think of his family. I've gotten a big mortal biggin, twelve on em in Saranin, as it'd be left on the world if it were to happen. Twelve on em as it'd be left without no one to stand by em and provide for em. There's not a family misses so much as the head. The head should not run no risks. It's the head's duty to take care of his'n and keep it to the safe side. Who threw the stone, said Howarth. Mr. Brierly gave him one coward glance and broke down. It were Thomas Reddy, he burst forth helplessly. Lord, have mercy on me. Where is he? He's in there, jerking his cap towards the barroom. And I'm in the worst mess I ever were in my old life. I'm fettlet now by the Lord Harry. Which way does he go home? Straight along the road here. If I mun get up to my neck, and be damned to him if I may take the liberty. Settle yourself to stand here till he comes out, and then tell me which is him. Eh? When he comes out, say the word, and stay here till he does. I've got a bit of something to settle with him. Will to... Will to promise that... Thou will not let out who did it. If the does, they'll bury me in club and brass to pay out before a week's over. You're safe now, Howarth answered. If you'll keep your mouth shut, they'll hear not from me. A gleam of hope, a faint one, illumined Mr. Brierly's countenance. I would no had no objections to that settling with him, he said. I had not not again that. He's a chap as I am not fond on, and he's getting more cheek than belongs to him. I'd a settled with him myself if I had not been a family man. I haven't a family to think on holds a band back. There, I hear him coming now. Would you? In some hurry. How'd again me getting behind the pump? Get behind it, answered Howarth, and be damned to you. He got behind it with alacrity, and, as it was not a large pump, was driven by necessity to narrowing himself to its compass, as it were, and taking up very little room. Howarth himself drew back somewhat, and yet kept within hearing. Four or five men came out and went their different ways, and Mr. Brierly made no sign. But as the sixth, a powerful, clumsy fellow passed, he uttered a cautious, There he is! Howarth did not stir. It was a dark, cloudy night, and he was far enough from the road to be safe from discovery. The man went on at a leisurely pace. Mr. Brierly reappeared, breathing shortly. I must go home, he said. Sir Annan, and scarcely waiting for Howarth's signal of dismissal, he departed as if he had been shot from a string bow.
and fled forth into the shadows. Mr. Reddy went at a leisurely pace, as has been before observed. He usually went at a leisurely pace when he was on his way home. He was a bad lot altogether, and his home was a squalid place, and his wife more frequently than not had a black eye or a bruised face, and was haggard with hunger and full of miserable plaints and reproaches. Consequently, he did not approach the scenes of his domestic joys with any haste. He was in a worse humor than usual tonight from various causes, the chief one perhaps being that he had only had enough spiritous liquor to make him savage and to cause him to enliven his way with blasphemy. Suddenly, however, at the corner of a lane which crossed the road, he paused. He heard behind him the sound of heavy feet nearing him with a quick tramp, which somehow presented to his mind the idea of a purpose, and for some reason, not exactly clear to himself, he turned about and waited. "'Who's that there?' he asked. "'It's me,' he was answered. "'Stand up and take thy thrashing, my lad.' The next instant he was struggling in the darkness with an assailant, and the air was hot with oaths, and they were writhing together and panting and striking blinding blows. Sometimes it was one man, and then the other who was uppermost, but at last it was Howard, and he had his man in his grasp. This is because you hit the wrong mark, my lad, he said, because luck went again you, and because it's gone again me. When he had done, Mr. Reddy lay beaten into seeming insensibility. He had sworn and gnashed his teeth and beaten back in vain. Who is it? By, he panted. Who is it? It's Howarth, he answered. Jem Howarth, my lad. And he was left there lying in the dark while Howarth walked away, his heavy breathing a living presence in the air until he was gone. End of chapter 36 Recording by Mario Edward Josepovic